morning. Hey, it's good to be with you guys. Um, I never met Grady, but I, I feel like I know him a little bit. Grady was born in the mid-30s in <clears throat> kind of rural Georgia. Uh, grew up in the shadow of the Depression, would have listened to the news reports about the Allied fighting in World War II as a kid. And then he graduated from high school in the mid-50s. And because he was a young black man, where he lived and in the time he lived, there were really not many opportunities for higher education for him. So he joined the Army. And he had a distinguished 20-year career, retiring as a sergeant first class in the United States Army. Uh, ended up being honorably discharged from Fort Sills, Oklahoma, and he chose to settle there. Grady got his Purple Heart in Vietnam. He was shot in an ambush and taken to Cambodia and lived in a prison camp. Now, I can imagine that Grady, growing up in the time and place that he did, experienced hardship. He knew what unjust treatment was like, but I cannot imagine what he experienced in terms of hardship and unjust treatment in Cambodia. But Grady was determined that he was not going to give up, that his captors would not be victors. He pressed on. He had this steadfast resilience, this persistence. And he came home to his wife and young son, and he added to his family. And he passed on to each of his four children and to his multitude of grandchildren that same idea that I don't care what you're facing today. I don't care what the hardship is. You do not give up. You do not give in. You do not walk away. Because you have no idea what's ahead. Don't give up. I feel like, uh, even though I never met Grady, I feel like I know him. And it's because I see those qualities, that character of determination in his grandson, who is my son-in-law now. And even before my daughter married him, I knew that story. Because it has shaped his family now for two generations. See, the right stories can shape who we are. They can, they can steer us in the right direction. They can challenge us. They can change us. They can help us understand how other people see the world. Stories are powerful things for good or for bad. If we let the wrong stories determine who we become, that's just as powerful but far more negative. And this morning we want to talk about three stories that really matter to God. So would you bow your heads and I'm going to pray for us. God in heaven, I am so grateful that the Bible tells us your story, the story of your interaction with humanity through all of our brokenness, your faithfulness. And I love the ending. And Jesus, the gospels tell us your story, how you came and lived out uh, the love of God for us. You taught us about him and then you demonstrated his love on a cross. Thank you so much for the power of that story, Lord Jesus and Holy Spirit, you write your story on our hearts. You change us from the inside out, and I thank you for that. In each heart this morning, uh, where we're distracted, where we have anxiety or anxious thoughts, I pray that you would push those to the side and open us up to uh, hear from your word today. Less of me, more of you. Amen. 
Uh, if you have your Bible with you, you can look to John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. We're going to start there and then jump to Mark 10. It's also, they're written on the back of the program. And if you have a phone and you go to mygateway.life and you just go to the main page and you scroll down to the first card, I think it says Sundays at Gateway, you can find the notes there as well. These are three stories that we're going to talk about this morning, Nicodemus, and then in the next chapter, the woman at the well, and the third story is the rich young ruler. We're going to touch on these stories which are probably familiar to many of us. We've heard them before, uh, and they'll help us kind of get a bigger picture about what's important to God. So Nicodemus, if you look at John chapter 3, I'm going to kind of tell you the story here a little bit. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, you know, teacher, we know you're from God. No one could perform the miracles and the signs that you're doing if God were not with them. And Jesus says something kind of unexpected. You'd think he'd say thank you or like, wow, you know, I admire your uh, kingdom perspective. But Jesus says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. You can almost picture Nicodemus going like, uh... Okay, and uh, how can a man be born again when he's old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he can't enter a second time into his mother's womb. Jesus said, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You shouldn't be surprised at me saying that you have to be born again. The wind blows wherever it blows. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. You know, you, you can see the wind, you see the trees bending, you, you feel the cool breeze, but you can't predict it. You, you don't understand how that works, but you still get it. And yet, when it comes to spiritual things, you're kind of dense here, Nicodemus. Nicodemus says, how can this be? And Jesus responds, you're Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know, we testify to what we've seen, but still you people, the Pharisees, the Jewish religious leaders, you do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, I've explained it to you in earthly terms, and still you don't believe, then how will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Now, when this passage is normally taught, we point out things like Nicodemus. He's, he's one of the religious leaders. He's uh, the most conservative, the most scholarly, and, and he is a very influential person. This would be like, you know, a professor emeritus at Harvard Divinity School. He knows religion. And in addition, he's part of the ruling Jewish council. So out of the 72 men who were in charge of all of Israel's judicial process, he's one of them. This is a guy who has power, authority, and influence, and you get the impression he's coming to Jesus to say, hey, you know, Jesus, you're a young guy, but I'm a religious scholar, and you've got potential, buddy. You know, keep at it. One of these days, you're going to be big. And Jesus kind of flips the script. He changes it and starts talking about being born again. It's obvious Nicodemus has no idea. So when we typically preach on this passage, we talk about the idea that information is important. But it doesn't necessarily lead to transformation, which is what God is concerned about. Knowing Jesus, knowing about him, that's different from having a personal relationship with him, where he is the king of your kingdom, where he's the leader. You can be a professor of religion, an expert in ethics, and never experience a spiritual birth. And if that's the case, then you will not enter the kingdom of God. All right, let's flip forward to the next chapter, John chapter 4, and Jesus meets a different kind of person. Not a religious scholar, not somebody well regarded in his culture, but a Samaritan woman. 
And for uh, a variety of reasons, uh, really devout Jews in this time would have looked at Samaritans as people to be avoided. Most people who were righteous Jews would have gone the long way around to get where they were going so they didn't have to walk through Samaria. The Samaritans in the Jews' eyes were religious mongrels. They had intermarried with all kinds of people. They had let foreign gods influence them. All these crazy ideas. They were not real God followers. And in fact, you know, if you see a Samaritan come and just get to the other side of the street or hide because you don't even want to be in proximity. You could, they, they were treated like lepers. And yet Jesus chose to go through Samaria to get where he was going. And he came to a place called Sakar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. That's where Jacob's well was. So this is a very well-known landmark. It's noon. Jesus has been walking for a day and a half to get to where he's going. And he sits down to rest while the disciples go to find food. And a woman comes to draw water. Will you give me a drink, Jesus asked. Now, this is weird for a couple of reasons. First of all, most of the time, the women who had to go get the water would go in the morning or in the evening when it was cool. This woman came in the middle of the day, the hottest part of the day, almost as if she was trying to avoid everybody. And in fact, she didn't go to any of the wells that we know are much closer to Sakar. She went way out of town where nobody in their right mind would go to get water because she didn't want to interact with people. And of all people she might interact with, uh, a Jewish rabbi would be very low on the list. Uh, women in the Middle East back then, as in some places now, would not be able to talk to a man unless they were accompanied by a man. And she knew quite well that Jews looked down on Samaritans. And so when Jesus asked for water because he was thirsty, and she came up with a bucket or a jar or a vessel to draw the water, her response is, wait a minute, you're a Jew and you're asking me for water. And then just in case we miss it, uh, there's a parenthetical note here, verse 8. Uh, I'm sorry, it's in verse 9. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. This is why she's surprised. And she's kind of, I don't know, maybe she's kind of gutsy in saying to this Jewish guy, like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> so you guys don't talk to me, right? But you want me to get you some water. Is that what you're saying? Uh, and so... Uh, then Jesus, like with Nicodemus, kind of changes the subject a little bit. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. You see how he's flipped this from just a normal conversation, something that has great spiritual impact. And like Nicodemus, she doesn't get it. Uh, hang on a second. Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. How are you going to get the living water? Assuming like, well, what are you saying? Like the really good stuff is down at the bottom of the well? How are you going to do that? Or wait a minute. If you're suggesting that because you're Jewish, and you know a well that's better than this one, hang on, buddy, because this was Jacob's well. And Jacob is our ancestor, and he's your ancestor too. And he drank from this, and his livestock drank from it. What's this living water that's supposed to be so good? Jesus says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him like a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Man, this is, this is Jesus talking about spiritual rebirth. If you take a drink of the living water that only comes from God, you're going to be changed. Not only is your deepest longing going to be satisfied, but this spring of eternal life flows up from in your life and it splashes out into the lives of people around you. Well, she still doesn't quite get it, but it's like, okay, so if you got that kind of water, I would like it because that'll save me a trip out to the well every day. And Jesus said, go call your husband and come back. She says, I have no husband. 
Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you're living with right now is not your husband. You have said something that is quite true. Okay, at this point, it's just creepy for this woman. It's like, oh my gosh, how does he know that about me? Sir, I can see you're a prophet. And she kind of switches the subject. So uh, let's talk about religion rather than my personal life. You know, our people say we worship here. You guys say you got to worship in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, look, a time's coming when it's not going to make any difference where you worship the Father. It's how you worship him. It's not about place. A time is coming and actually has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. And then kind of maybe in a last plea, it's like, okay, well, I don't know a lot about this religious stuff, but I know there's a Messiah coming. There is, a, there's, there is somebody coming, and when he gets here, he's going to straighten all of this out, and we'll know who's right and who's wrong. And Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Wow. Now, the disciples come back. They kind of interrupt the flow of things. A woman slips off. She's so excited. She runs back to her village, and she tells the townspeople, and many believe just because of her testimony. If you jump ahead to verse uh, 39, it says, many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him. They asked Jesus to stay with them two days, and because of his words, many more became believers. Uh, this, this woman responded to Jesus, and it changed her whole town. And often on this passage of Scripture, uh, we just say, look, the good news is for everybody. It doesn't, you don't have to be a religious expert to get the love of God for people. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to fix your relational messes. Jesus loves you just like you are, and there's a place for you in the kingdom of heaven. It's kind of interesting because this woman is the one who, out of the, the three people that Jesus interacts with, the one least likely to make an impact for God. You know, like, hey, who do you think is going to have more impact for God? The religious scholar, a rich young ruler who's powerful and does everything right, or this pathetic excuse for a woman who's just a relational mess? Well, it's the woman, the Samaritan woman. Now, uh, if you jump back to Mark chapter 10, this is the third story that we want to take a quick look at, and it's typically called the rich young ruler. It's in Matthew, uh, Mark, and Luke's gospel. Jesus is starting on his way. A man runs up to him and falls on his knees before him and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So right off the bat, you admire this guy's eagerness and his respect for Jesus. Good teacher, let me bow before you. You're obviously a guy of authority. Kind of sounds a little bit like Nicodemus. And Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Remember how Jesus likes to take the conversation. It starts here and he goes, nope, we're going to go over here. Let's talk about spiritual things. And to this man, he's like, that's interesting that you're calling me good because really nobody is perfectly good. Nobody is so righteous that they could stand before God except for God himself. And you're calling me good teacher. Hmm, what does that say about who I am? And Jesus goes on, you know the commandments, don't murder, don't commit adultery, da, da, da. The guy says, oh, all of those I've kept since I was a boy. Awesome. Well, you're in then, probably. Jesus looked at him and he loved him. I mean, Jesus is like, this guy is awesome. I mean, he's killing it. So Jesus says one more thing. Okay, so if you're worried that you're missing something, you're, you're, you're awesome. You're doing a righteous job. You're doing everything you're supposed to do. So just one more thing. Go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven, and then just come follow me. That's all you got to do. 
And we're told that the young man walked away very sad because he had a lot of stuff. Now, the woman at the well responded immediately. Nicodemus, it took a couple of years. We read later on in John 19 that he went with Joseph of Arimathea and retrieved Jesus' body from the cross and helped prepare it for burial, put it in the tomb. That was a very risky thing for him to do. We don't ever get any word on the rich young ruler. We're left with the impression, wow, he just said, mm, okay, never mind. That's, that's a little too hard for me. I'm going to move on. Now, in each of these uh, situations, we get glimpses of how God relates to people. Uh, I don't know about you, but for me, I relate most strongly out of those three stories to the story of Nicodemus because I grew up in church. I knew a lot about Jesus. I was not a religious scholar at the age of 10, but I knew all of the stories. I had gone. I sat in big church. I did Sunday school, I, you know, Wednesday night stuff. I was in the kids' choir. I mean, like, you know, I knew a lot about Jesus, but I had never decided to trust him with my life until that point in 1972 where I made that decision and I had a spiritual birth. I got a taste of living water, and my life has never been the same. I don't know about for you, but uh, I want you to bow your heads for just a second. I want to pray for us, and I want to pray for some of the people around us. God, there may be somebody here this morning who has never been born again. They, they may be very religious. They may know a lot about Scripture or about the religions of the world. They may be righteous and doing everything right like the rich young ruler, but they've, they've never tasted living water. And if that's the case, God, I pray that you would touch their hearts this morning and give them the boldness to say, okay, Jesus, I'm in. Whatever, whatever you want from me. Most of us here today already walk with you, but we're surrounded by people at work, maybe in our own family, neighbors, people we know who are distant from you. And I pray that as we think about these three stories and your love for people who are clueless about a relationship with you, you would make us useful. You would help us to seize the opportunities. Help us to, to pray for those people and to be watchful and to steer the conversation when you open up the opportunity. I ask this in your name, Jesus, because I want you to be glorified. Amen. Now, uh, these three narratives, these three interactions that Jesus had kind of point us to three different kinds of stories, and those really are the stories I'm talking about this morning that really matter to God. They matter to Him, and so they should matter to us. And out of necessity, this is a very simple view. There are more than just three layers, but I hope it will begin to help us think about how we can harness the power of stories to engage and encourage each other. So think about it. In each of these three encounters, there was the surface-level story. There was the story they told to Jesus and themselves. So Nicodemus' story was, I'm a religious expert, a respected scholar, the Samaritan woman, I'm an outcast. I'm a broken. My life is a mess. I try to hide it from everyone I meet. And the rich young ruler felt like he was living an exceptionally righteous life that should surely earn him a spot in the kingdom of God. And Jesus accepted each of these three people in spite of the error in each of their stories. So there's this surface level story. And then there's another layer of the story. It's the true story. Nicodemus had a lot of spiritual information, but he had never experienced a spiritual birth. The woman at the well said she wasn't married, but the deeper reality was that she had been through tons of relationships. And if you know the culture of that time, women couldn't file for divorce. This means five men had used her and thrown her out. 
We don't know why that is. Maybe she had a, a physical disability. Maybe she had an emotional struggle. But for whatever reason, she was a loser with a capital L in her culture. And she was shunned by her very town. The rich man wasn't willing to do whatever it took to follow Jesus. He just liked his stuff too much. So there's a true story. And then finally, the most critical story of all is God's story. It took Nicodemus a couple of years to realize that Jesus really was who he said he was. The woman at the well is the one who immediately began with great excitement and joy to follow after Jesus. And she carried other people. She dragged other people with her. And 2,000 years later, we're still telling her story. The rich young man, he decided he didn't want to be a part of God's story. It just would cost too much. Now look, for each of us, we have those same three layers that we have to deal with and we have to struggle with. So number one, there's the story we tell. The story we, we tell to other people, it's what we want other people to think of us. Sometimes it's the story we tell ourselves. If you've ever seen one of those movies and at the beginning and under the title, it's based on a true story. What that means is like there was a kernel of an idea here. There was an actual guy, but we're going to make the story sound a lot better because that way you'll pay money for this. And that's how we do it. We, we may not realize it, but we edit the truth in our heart and mind and the story we tell may not be as accurate as we think. Colleen Georges is a psychologist and she's a frequent TED Talk speaker. She says every day, every moment, we're scripting our own stories. Our self-story is scripted from all the things we tell ourselves through our internal dialogue about who we are, why we are or aren't good enough, what we are or aren't capable of, and what possibilities the future can hold for us. Our self-story is our self-perception. And it influences our perceptions of others and the world around us. It impacts the actions we take regarding ourselves, others, and life overall. Now, Paul puts it this way in Galatians 6.3. He says, if anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they're deceiving themselves. And I would argue the corollary of that is true as well. If anyone thinks they're nothing when they're really something in God's eyes, they deceive themselves. It may not be intentional or malicious, but it happens for lots of legitimate reasons. And we just need to be aware of the fact that what we perceive, what we conclude, may not be as accurate as we think. Now, the great news here is that Jesus loved each one of these people. He responded to them. He engaged with them no matter the story they tried to convey about themselves. So your story won't scare off Jesus. But he does call us to work towards our true story. Beyond our perception of things, there is reality. There are lots of times when I can see this in the lives of people around me. I don't know if it, it's like this with you, but I can see it in, all over my family. Like, oh yeah, yeah, he's wrong about it. She should, yeah, they're, ah, uh, just ask me. I'll tell you what you should do. I never see it of myself. It's a far more challenging thing to recognize it in my own heart when I twist things, when I edit situations, when I draw the wrong conclusions. Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, the purposes of a person's heart are deep waters. The one who has insight draws them out. Get that idea? It's like whatever's going on inside, that's complex. That's complicated. It's hard to figure out, sift through, know what's true, what's not. But somebody who's smart, they invest the time and effort to get to the bottom of things. And then think about David's prayer in Psalm 139 where he says, Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me. And know my anxious thoughts. Basically, he's saying, look... I know I can't read this accurately. There's stuff in here that's buried. I don't even know what it is, and I need your help, God. 
And if I want to move ahead in the way of righteousness, the way of God, I need you to search me and help me understand and respond to whatever you find in there, Lord. That's a pretty crazy prayer. So how do we move towards the true story? I would say, hold loosely to the conclusions we draw about ourselves and others, especially when there's conflict, when we disagree with somebody, when we disagree uh, vigorously with somebody else. That's a great opportunity for us to go like, hang on a second. Let me, let me try to understand what they're saying. Let me see if there's a, an error in my way here that, that, you know, just stirs up anger in me. When we have disagreements with others, there's an opportunity to dig into their views. If our goal isn't to win the fight, but to understand their perspective, we may learn something. And worst case scenario, we've just loved them a little better. We've let them share what they're thinking, and we've shown them honor and respect. Performance appraisals at work, that, that's a great opportunity to learn something, especially if you ask follow-up questions. But in other areas, ask feedback from your friends, from your children, from your siblings. Uh, I'm, I think praying is a great place to start. Uh, I recommend Christian counseling. I'm uh, kind of kept me sane over the last 30 years, so uh, I think there are lots of great Christian books. Journaling is another way that maybe can help you separate what you think is true from what is actually true. Another great thing is just to be a, a part of a group of other Christians who are, are talking about life and trying to aim for reality. And we have a lot of small groups here at Gateway that can help you in that respect. For Jesus, he knew the true story for each of these three people he encountered. There was never any confusion in his mind about who they really were, but we're not Jesus. So figuring out the true story, even for ourselves, may take some work, but that work pays off. Okay, so at precisely this moment in the early service, I had like an out-of-body experience. I, I've, never, I've never had this happen before. It was like I had... I, was, I actually, I wondered, like, is this what a stroke feels like? I don't, I don't have any physical symptoms, but I'm looking at this page. I have no idea what it says. This just looks like bad. So I kind of froze. <laughs> very weird. So I'm just trying to set the bar very low, okay? So, uh, you know, if you get coherence from this point forward, it's a win, okay? Uh, so last thing that I want to talk about this morning is God's story. Uh, because this is the most important of these kind of stories, the, the three layers that matter so much to God. The woman of the well gives us such a clear picture of somebody who is willing to let go of their own story and focus on God's story. Because of her, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about her, we're still looking at her, and it's a great reminder for us. So when we let God's story overtake our own story, our own agenda, our own priorities, man, that's when God can do something. When God writes the story, the humble are exalted and the proud are humbled. Treasure in heaven is more important than stuff here on earth. Death on a cross is a victory. Being in prison doesn't slow down the advance of the kingdom of God and ordinary people do extraordinary things. Paul puts it this way in Galatians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power, all power is from God and not us. So back in the day, they didn't have Tupperware. They had clay jars. They were cheap. It was easy. Uh, when they cracked, you just tossed them out. And everybody had all these various clay jars. Anybody could make them, and you just stuck stuff in them whenever you needed to. And so it wasn't uh, unusual for you to have a jar that was less than perfect, but hey, if it holds water, if it holds the flowers, or if it holds some rocks, or whatever you need it to do, 
It's all about functionality. And, and so the idea here is this, imagine this, this vessel that has cracks in it, but there's this amazing treasure inside of it, blazing through, light streaming through the cracks. You're, you're not worried about the cracked vessel. You're going like, oh my gosh, I wonder what's in that jar. That's awesome. Well, that's exactly what God intends for us. We're screwed up, broken people. We're not the point. It's God at work within us that gets other people's attention. They look at us in our weakness. They see the strength and the glory of God. Or Ephesians 2.10, which says, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, we're his masterpiece, his creation, his work of art. When we are born again, when we drink the living water, he changes us. And we're supposed to be 3D representations, sculptural masterpieces of his work so that when people look at us, they get that we're screwed up, but they see God at work and he is glorified. Uh, he, he gives us these good works to do, not so that we can earn salvation or get favor with God. It's the natural outcome of the gift of forgiveness that he's already given us. It's just, it's the fruit of having a relationship with him. And I love this, it's so that, um, it says, so we can walk in them. And it's this idea of like, so we can walk around and have a large territory. We can cover all the territory for good works that God has given us. We don't have to just stand in one place and like, oh, let me, oh, sorry, I can't help you. It's uh, you're too far away. We, we're supposed to roam the full territory that God has given us doing good works. We join him in his redemptive work. We partner with him to serve his storyline. How do you do that? How do you, how do you participate in God's story, I'll give you a couple of ideas. One would be to read his other work. You know, if, if you want to know how God's story goes, well, you can start with the Bible. But you can also read his work in the lives of other Christians here at Gateway and in the wider world. And that will help you see how God works potentially in your own life. You can also pay attention to the plot twists. So in every good story, there are ups and downs, twists and turns, and when God writes them into your story, recognize them as opportunities to trust him more. Don't panic, just stay faithful, navigate the challenges his way. Plot twists are what makes the story intriguing to the people outside of the story. Uh, a third thing is remember that great stories are always about character development. So especially if you're in a dry season, but even in a season of plenty, pay attention to ways that God might be trying to grow you or increase your dependence on Him. If it's painful or awkward, let the people around you know what He's teaching you. Share how He's correcting you or encouraging you or challenging. And then a fourth suggestion is to never forget the ending. I mean, we know how the story ends, right? So even if we don't understand all that He's up to in our present circumstance in this moment, we know that ultimately God is control, in control and one day he will right every wrong and wipe every tear. Some of you know uh, of Joni Erickson Tata. She is a, a Christian speaker. She's an author, a ministry leader, a conference speaker. She has a very compelling personal testimony because she has been a quadriplegic for most of her life. She says, if God seems to be writing an unusual story in your life, don't resist his penmanship on the pages of your days. Don't balk at the bumps and bruises he writes into your script. 
I'll be the first to confess that his providence can at times read like a mystery novel, but in the end, his storyline for those who trust him is always wise, specific, and good. Good for you and good for others. Best of all, good for the kingdom. So if you're a follower of Jesus, every day of your life, whether you feel like it or not, your day is weighted with kingdom purpose, eternal significance, and royal destiny. My prayer for you is that you would understand the most critical of these stories is God's story and the story that he wants to write in your life if you will let him. Would you bow your head? God's stories are are so important to our lives. It's how we connect with people. It's often how we share our feelings. And you have used story in Scripture, in history, to reveal your love for us. I just pray that you would write your story in our lives and that we would be able to move beyond the story we tell ourselves by the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would give you the freedom to write your story in us. Help us to remember that even when things are hard, even when we don't understand what's going on, You are the author and the finisher of our faith. Help us to let you do what only you can do. Thank you so much for giving us your story, Lord Jesus. We yield to you this morning. Have your way in our hearts. Let us be more focused on your story in us than anything else. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.